They're incredibly gracious. None of you exited the building when you had the chance. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I've got a poll here, right, where the clock is. So I've got a, I'll, I'll try and do a better job of time. So uh, we've been cruising at 30,000 feet. Uh, we dropped a little to 20 to look at some features of the landscape. Uh, what I want to do now is be less big picture and come down to four specific questions that give us another way of thinking about deconstruction, deconversion. Um, so here, and, and again, we've got this third session coming up where you can explore, ask for clarification, push back, disagree, whatever works. Um, here are the four questions. Just gonna, let me gonna billboard these. One, just how bad is it? What's the word on statistics? Well, if you read the headlines, it's depressing, right? We'll, we'll get to that. Second, what does deconstruction, deconversion actually mean? So we'll get some key definitions to those terms, right? Uh, and then third, why are so many leaving Christianity? Whatever we want to say about the cultural shift, the fact is when we come to church on Sunday morning, we notice empty seats. If you're a pastoral staff member, if you're the youth group leader, if you've been a member of the church for any period of time, you know there are folks who are no longer here tracking with us. And it hurts. Why? And fourthly, is there anything we can do? Are there some priorities, some basic things that all of us as Christians might do? So they're the four questions. I'm going to do my best to keep them to, you know, seven or eight minutes each to claw back some time. Um, how bad is it? What are the statistics? Well, good news and bad news, it's not great, um, but it's, it's not, we haven't fought, driven off the cliff, right? Uh, when you look at statistics and, and demographics and these things, you really got to take a bigger picture look. So I'm going to take a 40-year period, right? From 1978 to 2018, 40 years, we have a ton of good data there. Uh, we have Pew, we have Gallup, we have the National Social Studies Program, we have all kinds of private groups, lots of data. Now, if we read the headlines, some of which I cited, we hear these massive shifts, like, good grief, is anybody left, right? Um, in actual fact, if we talk about uh, evangelicalism, now, don't get me started. Evangelical is a word that's changing its meaning, right? We now have to think about being theologically evangelical and culturally evangelical. We can get to that another time. But if we think about evangelicalism as a theological tradition, right, what do you think's happened over 40 years? You read the headlines? We're off the cliff, we should be selling property, uh, we should be stacking up the chairs. In actual fact, we are remarkably steady. There is some minor percentage points of decline starting to show. There have been some roller coaster moments, especially in the mid-80s and mid-90s, which saw spikes actually up. But overall, we are holding steady at 21 to 22% of the population. For 40 years, that is largely unchanged, even now. You're not hearing that headline, are you? Theological evangelicalism survives report of decline. So what's going on? 
Well, tragically, when we look at the mainline Protestant churches, those churches that were once predominant in American life, um, we see that there is massive decline. About 30% of the population attended a mainline church in the 1970s. Today, barely 10%. So when you see a building up for sale, mostly it's a mainline church. Uh, what about black Protestantism, the black church? The black church has a remarkable, significant history, one that ought to be more studied and understood. But tragically, they too are on a downward drift. In the 1970s, the black church represented 10 to 12% of the North American population. Today, it's about 6%. It's halved. Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism is, is a large piece of the, ply, uh, of the pie. Uh, it has been fairly steady historically, like evangelicalism, but in the last decade or so has really dipped from about 27 28% down to 23%. And in fact, each time we take a poll, we see significant gaps. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church is hurting in this last decade. Uh, we don't think of this, but when statisticians uh, take religion polls, they include more than Christianity. So we think of Judaism in this country, never a majority report, but 40 years ago, Judaism represented about 3% of the population. Today, it's 1.7. Again, significant statistical decline. And then we have this category called other, which has never been a big category in North American life. Uh, it used to rank at about 3 to 4%. Today, it's 6.5%. There is growth for other religions. But we need to look at this. The growth is not Christians leaving these other churches to become Muslims, Hindu, or Buddhists. The growth point is Mormonism. Statistically fascinating, and of course, as you might expect, immigration. So it's not this uniform picture of everybody packing up faith and leaving the church. Uh, there is a, a culture-wide shift. There are many, many more people now who choose to identify as none. Uh, not the nuns with the black habit, right, but the nuns, N-O-N-E. These are the ones that generate all the headlines, right? Nuns went from being 5%, 5.1% of the American population in the early 1970s to 23.7% in 2018, and today at 31 to 32%, surpassing Catholics and evangelicals. So it's this category of the nuns, people who don't identify with a particular religious tradition that is really statistically significant and growing and capturing the headlines. Uh, this group saw particular growth from 1991 to 1996, we call it hockey stick growth, right? Going along, going along, boom. It's already slowing. It's already began to peak to slow. Where do the nuns come from? They come from the mainline church, black Protestantism, 
the Roman Catholic Church, and that few percentage points of evangelicals who left the church. In other words, statistically, we know that 78% of the nuns have a Christian background. Now, not good. We'd love them to keep their Christian background and not report none. But when we scratch the surface, it's not true that the nuns don't believe. Um, as we look at the 78% of people reporting no religious affiliation, none, we discover less than 6% are atheists. About 6% are agnostic. The vast majority don't yet know what they are and continue to practice some form of Christian-like spirituality. Nothing in particular is the nuns are not Wiccans, they're not Jedis, they are unaffiliated. They're the fastest growing group in America. They are less averse to religious activity, less averse. They're not unwilling. Invite your neighbours, invite your friends, they'll probably come. 10% of this nun attend church yearly, 10% attend church monthly, 35% of the nuns say religion is extremely important. 25% over time return back to a religious tradition. 16.5% of all nuns are back in a Christian congregation within four years. Now, there's lots we can mourn and lament. There's lots we should pay attention to. We would love to limit that kind of shift. This is not the stuff of doom and gloom. This is not the end is near. This is not the church has failed. G.K. Chesterton said there have been six periods of time in the history of the church in which the church was thrown out to the dogs. On each occasion, it was the dog that died. Christianity has a remarkable ability to survive, to adapt to return. That doesn't mean we should overlook this or be ignorant of what's going on. It doesn't mean we shouldn't seek to stem the tide. We've got to do all that we can do to understand what's going on and what it means, but we ought not uh, turn on the doom generators and imagine it's all over, there's nothing we can do. This is not yet woe is me. Uh, one other comment I do need to say as we think about uh, the definition of evangelical, we also are beginning to see solid evidence that white Americans who viewed Trump favorably and who identified as evangelicals, the famous 81%, right, are much more likely than Trump skeptics to identify as born-again or evangelical Protestant. In other words, what we're also seeing in the data is that evangelicalism is splitting. We have theological evangelicals. I would identify with that. That's a long-standing tradition coming out of the Reformation, coming out of the revival movements of the 18th century, uh, identifiable confessional body of teaching versus a cultural voting bloc. 
that is trying desperately to hang on to a particular vision of American life in the world. And what's happening now is we have people who check the box, evangelical, born again, who never go to church, who don't participate in the life of a congregation, but for whom that means a certain way of life. So evangelical is a contested label, and you're going to be hearing a lot more about that, particularly as we ramp up to 24. I bet we'll be having these kinds of conversations. All right, takeaway, what's going on? How bad is it? It's serious, but we're not on life support. And in fact, we give ourselves and we belong to the one who can raise even the dead. We're okay, folks. Let's just be attentive. Let's be caring. All right, what's, what do we mean, deconstruction, deconversion? What are we actually talking about? Uh, this has gotten very contested as different people want to use labels in different ways. Uh, I'm going to offer you uh, a taxonomy, if you will, of four terms. These are the four Ds, right? I'm going to start with doubt, and then I'm going to talk about uh, deconversion, sorry, deconstruction, then disaffiliation, and then finally deconversion. I think the best way to understand the phenomenon uh, is not by isolating it or quibbling over particular definitions, but by looking at kind of a sequence, uh, a process of events that is fairly common and has been common at different periods of church history. So I'm going to start this way. Let's think for a moment about doubt. To doubt is to be in two minds, right? It comes from the Latin word dubitare, to be caught in two minds. It's to experience divided trust. It's the discomfort of having one foot in two different camps. I have several Chinese friends uh, in Australia and they always had the, the image, uh, apparently uh, there's a Chinese image of a man with a foot in two canoes. That's a great image. Think about that for a moment. Put yourself in those two canoes gets painful fast, right? They don't stay steady. You're constantly shifting your weight. At some point, you're falling into the water. To doubt is not to disbelieve. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. It's not the same as unbelief. This way. To believe is to be in one mind. I accept these things. To disbelieve is to be in one mind. I reject those things. To doubt is to waver between the two. To believe and to disbelieve at the same time and therefore to be in two minds. There's a lot we could say about doubt, but what I want us to catch is that it's this weird middle place that actually is quite uncomfortable. Doubt can lead to deeper faith. Doubt can lead you to growth. Doubt can also turn invidious and threatening. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. It does not have to diminish or undercut faith. But the experience of doubt frequently precedes a response of rejection. 
Best experience of doubt. We could spend a whole lot of time. Doubt's a fascinating topic, but we won't go there. So in that context, let's think about deconstruction. In this slide, deconstruction is one response to doubt. Doubt, as I've said, doesn't have to lead to deconstruction, doesn't have to lead to the overturning of faith. Stated simply, deconstruction is the practice or the process of reviewing, revising long-held beliefs, often with a view to integrating new experiences, new understanding. I want us to think of deconstruction dynamically, not statically. It's a negotiation. It's a process. The term is new to some of us. It arises out of the postmodern uh, lexicon, but it's not actually new. All human persons go through some phase, some period of deconstruction. The term does not have to mean the loss of faith. If your young person, uh, if your spouse, if your work colleague says to you, I'm really struggling right now, uh, I'm in a phase of deconstruction, that they're not telling you they've left a faith or given up. And don't treat them as if they have. What they're saying is, I'm renegotiating how all the bits fit together. My assumption is if they're telling you, if they're trusting you, they're probably inviting your help at some degree. Um, generally, what we're seeing now in our 21st century moment, when we think of deconstruction today, mostly what's happening is that individuals are negotiating their faith in relationship to the shifting culture. And most people who deconstruct, right, or are looking to negotiate their faith towards more or greater cultural acceptance. My friends are staggeringly, overwhelmingly pro-LGBTQIA+. I'm not even surprised. That's the culture. When, someone, when I get an email or a phone call that says, you know, I've been rereading this passage of the Bible, I really can't imagine that God means what he says there. I'm not even surprised. I haven't met, and personally, I haven't met anyone who's deconstructed the other way. And what's happening is because of the cultural pressures we're under, because of the very public sins and failures of the church that we all know about, because it's now our loved ones, our neighbours, our kids, our whomever, that are wrestling with these issues, right? We're looking to make our faith fit experiences that we're all undergoing. So, in theory, deconstruction is about dissembling belief, becoming more open to examining the nuances of my beliefs. In practice, it's often the pursuit of cultural alignment. We tend to give up the sharp edges of our faith. We tend to give up the bits that stick out, that overhang, that the culture is most adamant in rejecting. You only have to read the accounts of deconversion to see that. All right, doubt, deconstruction, disaffiliation. 
We might legitimately debate whether disaffiliation or deconversion, how that, which precedes the other. But what I want us to see is that disaffiliation proceeds out of these prior steps. I've been doubting, I've been struggling, it's take, my doubts have taken a hold, I haven't resolved the tension, I enter into active deconstruction, I'm seeking greater cultural alignment, I'm trying to be in better relationship with my friends, my family members, and what tends to happen is, is that I move out of the community of my faith. I move away from the former certainty, the institution. Uh, there could be the youth ministry, right? Uh, youth group's not cool anymore because I know that the youth pastor takes this view, this stand. I know that the church I belong to holds these values. Uh, it could be the home Bible study. I was loving puddling about, trying to understand what God has said in his word. And then I discover he says things that I don't agree with. But everyone else is nodding. And everybody else is praying up a storm. And I'm like, I'm not on board with this. So I find another community, normally online, right? That's part of the phenomena. Disaffiliation is part of deconstruction. But it's a further step. To doubt was to be in two minds. To deconstruct was to respond to doubt by way of revisiting and even rejecting prior beliefs. Now, to disaffiliate is to tangibly act on my disassembling of beliefs. I leave my context. It's part of my deconstruction. I look for voices that I believe will help me that I believe will agree with me, that I believe will support me in my journey, my quest. Practically, deconversion, deconstruction are both broad terms that signal movement away from former certainties and from former commitments towards a more agreeable sense of faith. In some faith traditions, deconversion is synonymous with backsliding, falling away, even apostasy. Boy, that's a word that lands hard in our 21st century moment. Um, different eras have labelled this phenomena in different ways. I actually prefer the language of deconversion. Uh, it doesn't land in the ears quite as hard as calling somebody an apostate, and that can be helpful. Really? Why cause unnecessary offence? Right? But more than that, it adequately captures the sense of a process. Right? It also mirrors conversion. Conversion's incremental. Conversion's a form of deconstruction, if you will. The deconversion gives me a sense of a process playing out and directs me towards ways of potential intervention. Importantly, I think deconversion reminds us that what's unfolding is every bit as sociological as it is spiritual. I want to take seriously those cultural forces and shifts that we talked about previously. No one wakes up on a Thursday morning at 6 o'clock, turns off their alarm and says, I'm not a Christian anymore. They only get to that stage through this process of negotiating, renegotiating, not finding help, feeling hurt, wounded, struggling, hearing different voices, 
trying to make sense of the culture. All that happens, whether subconsciously or consciously, and leads us to a place of saying, it's too hard. I can't do this anymore. I don't want to be affiliated with that lot, that group. And so we, we drop out. That's the process. Deconversion is a process. It's a multi-stage experience of transforming change marked both by liberation from and opposition to one's former faith. That's why we get deconversion stories. I was blind, but now I see. Right? I used to go to such and such Baptist church, such and such Presbyterian church, such and such Pentecostal church, and now I don't, and here's all the dirty laundry. Liberation from, right, opposition to. Deconversion allows individuals to become religious in new ways, to become seekers, to become those who are on the move between denominations and traditions until they find the belief system or the community that better accords with their understanding or their current lifestyle. It's a human phenomenon. Are there other ways to uh, define these terms? Of course, we all know in the 21st century we all play the language game. But I think if we put these words in a kind of a context, if we think of them as steps and keep them related to one another, I, I hope we actually have a helpful handle on what's going on, and we're not so prone to be shocked or to jump back, and we may be encouraged to be drawn into dialogue and to recognize, oh, my friend said they're deconstructing. This is a process that's negotiated. I might be helpful here. I can be involved here. It's not all over and done. All right, so that gets us to the third question. Why are people leaving the church? Lots of reasons. No deconversion story is exactly the same as the other. Uh, I've conducted over 200 uh, interviews and engaged more than 200 written accounts of, of deconversion narratives. This is something I've been doing for a bunch of years. So here's what I'm going to do. Rather than come up with a clever theory, I'm just going to report what I'm hearing. I want us to listen to the deconverted for, for a moment. What are they saying? Some of us will disagree. Some of us will be provoked maybe to anger or, but, but, but wait. We're just going to listen for a moment. So as I take these 200 plus accounts of people I know and have read and have interviewed who've left the faith, all right, here's uh, what I hear. Generally three buckets. I'm going to lump some things together. Uh, bucket number one relates to pressure points touching the culture. Now, after everything we said, we just shouldn't be surprised anymore. The culture is the engine. The culture is the driver here. But what are the, some of the particular pressure points? Here's, here's two that stand out. First, purity culture. Again and again and again, Men and women report the damage that they experienced, the confusion they encountered around purity culture. Now, for younger generations, it's beginning to tip towards the rise of LGBTQ issues, right? But for people reporting and interviewing and kind of adult age that I'm talking to, the remembrance of purity culture, their experience of the church policing sexual behavior, uh, the almost pathological fear of sexual activity. 
people remember uh, the over-promising. If you wear the ring, if you sign the pledge card, if you do whatever you're asked to do, then boy, when you're finally married, you'll get Mr. or Mrs. Right. You'll have the best sex ever. That overselling has now come back to haunt. I hear accounts of men and women who say, yeah, I waited for Mr. Right. I was chased through university, and I didn't fool around with my office colleagues. And when I finally met someone, he was authoritarian, he was abusive, he treated me terrible. That Christian man was worse than any of the non-Christian men I'd ever met. Or, spoke not very recently to an older woman out in St. Charles, uh, cafe, talking to her. She actually overheard me talking to someone else and came over. I'm 58. I waited. And as a single woman, a middle-aged woman, not only am I alone, but I mean nothing to the church. There's no group for me. There's no invitation to the family home or to the special event. So we begin to have these experiences being reported back. And then, of course, there's the punishments, right? People who, uh, who fell, who stumbled into sin, who rebelled, whatever, and, and the way that they were called out or ostracized. But what we have in the literature is this experience of one aspect of Christian discipleship. And I'm not downplaying the need for sexual purity in the biblical sense of honouring the Lord with our bodies, But we added so many rules and regulations, right? We upped the bar. We hedged the law of God with human rules. And so many people are hurt. And so many people have left because they're hurt. We're seeing a similar thing, as I mentioned, the younger generation who feel that the church is incapable of having a meaningful conversation or a meaningful embrace of those who are same-sex attracted. Hearing that high schoolers, middle schoolers now. Kids who don't want to go to youth group because their best friend's non-binary and they don't feel like they're welcome at our youth group. Um, Related to sex uh, is church and nation. This is the next, uh, this is the same bucket of of pressures in the culture, but this is the other side of the conversation, is, is the alignment of the evangelical church with a certain political party. Um, the conflation of religion and politics, the endless pursuit of the right person in the right office as the way to bring uh, back America, regain our place in the culture. There's a confusing of our way of life, mission of God in this world. And people are looking at missions history, they're looking at the culture wars domestically, and they're saying, what's that? That does not look like what Jesus called us to. That does not look like observable unity, meaningful love that Jesus speaks about. So we're, we're seeing this bucket of cultural pressures and of issues. Now, that we, we could put others in there, but I hear these two things again and again and again. Second bucket. This is the bucket I call confessional content. These are the more um, typical questions that you and I might expect. These are the biblical problems, the denominational distinctives that can get in the way. 
Uh, I sit and I talk with folks who are deconverting, who are deconstructing, uh, and I hear about certain metaphysical conditions, right? We know if I were God, I'd sure make it a lot clearer. Why, why am I looking for him? Why isn't it plain? Why isn't it evident? Why isn't it obvious? Well, how often I had a, UF, a, a RUF pastor recently from another state contact me angry. How am I supposed to believe X and Y and Z? I can't take this to the university campus in full deconstruction. Mad because the Bible is, is teaching something, illustrating something, calling him to something. We all know the, the, the edges of biblical truth that protrude and that are difficult to navigate. Then there's the ethical commands, right? Why? What is this doing there? How could God do that to the Canaanites, the Amalekites, all the ites? What's going on there? Why would God tell me not to be in this relationship or not to be present uh, to that group of people? Essentially, we're in the grip. Many years ago, a guy called Wade Bradshaw wrote a book that sadly did not do especially well, but I think is very important. It's called Searching for a Better God. Still in print, Paternoster. Searching for a Better God has a very simple thesis. There's an old story and there's a new story. The old story under modernity was that God is not true. The reason why you shouldn't be a Christian is because you're believing in a fantasy, a fiction. God is not true. The new story under post-modernity, the new story of a collapsed center is not that God is, tr is not true. We are more moral than God. I wouldn't treat people the way that God does. I wouldn't do the things that God does. I wouldn't make the claims that God does. God's not good enough. I hear echoes of that in story after story, account after account. So the traditional areas of apologetics are still there, needing help, needing Christians to know their Bibles, to give meaningful answers, but it's wedded to these other cultural phenomenon and shifts. Denominational peculiarities... I say this even with my own kids. Praise the Lord, they're walking with Jesus and happily involved at church. But the, some of the discussions we have with their friends is, so you guys are Presbyterian, right? Yes. What about the other 216 denominations? Are they wrong? Are you better than them, are you? That, that has a real weight to the present generation. Or, as one high school student said, oh, you're a Christian. Oh, that's right. Do you believe in Jesus? You know the Jesus who said to his disciples, by my love, they will know that you are my disciples? Where's that? Cheeky 14-year-old put me on, dragging me out on the mat. Right? Um, good on him. Um, that's a felt feeling, younger and older. Many people are now reporting, I've been in church for years. I signed up, I was active, I was a member, I was on the committee, I was in leadership. The heart of Jesus' teaching. I'm not seeing it. I'm not experiencing it. That's palpable. Third bucket, very, very uh, expected. Sorry. The bucket of Christian conduct. Nearly everyone has experienced some degree of harm or hypocrisy. The age in which we live with the internet and Facebook and fill in the blank, we just project our wounds. We share the failures of the church. We name the pastors who let us down, the elders, the deacons, the 
the leaders who failed us. Uh, nearly everyone reports what I would call a self-directed experience. I experienced shame. I felt repressed. I felt overlooked. I didn't fit in, right? Therefore, I mustn't belong. It can't be true because I didn't fit in. Or the other directed response is, I've heard that person X had this thing happen. I know that person Y was shut down and stopped. They weren't even allowed to give their side of the story. The widespread reporting of pastoral abuse, scandal, of churches making decisions that may be biblical but are experienced as, as heavy-handed. And these three buckets in an endless collage of mutations and particulars accumulate to disembed somebody from their faith, to cause doubt, to lead them to renegotiate. Uh, these are the triggers uh, of deconstruction that are widely reported. We can add more. I'm sure you realize that. These are the three buckets and the half dozen issues that nearly always entered the narrative. There's a clue for us. These are the areas to pay attention to. It's true that the purity culture of the 80s seems to have gone away in many parts of the church. It doesn't We've got a chance to change the way we talk about uh, same-sex issues. The church has a deep reservoir of knowledge and thinking on this that we neglected for so many years. There are ways to have this conversation. We can learn from these reports where to focus and what to expect. When I have a conversation now and someone says, I'm struggling in my faith, So is there anything we can do about this? This is the last question, and for time we'll have to let it lead over into the Q&A. The good news is yes, there certainly is. Uh, let me just give you a few bullet points. And these are not just for the leaders of the church, but for all of us who would profess faith, for all of us who want to help our friends, right? Um, so here are some things we can do. First... Let's remind ourselves of what is most true. What is most true is that even though Christianity is shrinking in the United States, it's mainly shrinking in the mainline churches that have let go of biblical faith. More than that, Christianity is growing wildly around the world. God is not asleep at the wheel. He's not caught off guard. He is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. That doesn't mean we go all triumphant and pretend nothing's wrong. But it should give us a ballast, a weight. It should center us to say, you know what, this is a difficult day. It's tragic that we no longer see person X and Y. But you know what? That doesn't mean God is done with his church. It doesn't mean I need to abandon my faith to follow them into error i will double down on what i know to be most true and from that place try to serve and to offer what i can that gets to the second here's another thing that's encouraging jesus is still compelling 
He still speaks with wisdom even to current generations and to current confusion. He is still tender towards those who doubt and have concerns. It's fascinating when you traffic in the land of the deconstructed, they love Jesus. They still want to hear him. They still want to learn. What was Jesus' perspective? They're suspicious about the church. Paul can be a bit of a jerk sometimes, right? Jesus, everyone's on board. There is a fascination with Jesus. Now, Jesus is often made a little bit of a wax figure where he's massaged and pressed into particular shapes. But for those of us who actually know Jesus, for those of us who are students of his word and his teaching, we're in a great place to have conversation. Lots of deconstructed folk, I know lots of deconverted folk, are happy to do Bible study, are happy to hear sermons on the Gospels. Uh, some of you know Zach Eswine at Riverside Church. Uh, he's started a ministry called Sage Christianity. If you look up Sage Christianity with Zach Eswine, he's developing a website and resources for the deconverting and the deconstructing, and he's leading with Jesus, and he's getting tremendous traffic. Uh, another local ministry called Rethink 315, an apologetics ministry for high school kids, is so busy with requests, kids wanting to come and ask their questions, wanting to find out. So we're in a moment that's terribly fluid, desperately confusing, but Jesus is still a compelling figure. And if we can emulate his tenderness, we frequently get a hearing. Third, there's a real deep need for relational commitment, connection. As you've already heard me say, when, those, when someone says, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm deconstructing, don't step away. Come alongside. People are hungry for authenticity. That can get bent in a very selfish direction. But there is something profound, right? We all want to be true to who we understand ourselves to be. We want to be true to what we think God has made known in his word. And people are asking for help with that. Parents, if you've got kids who are struggling and deconstructing, the culture will tell you every time the age gap is too wide, the shift in generation means you're not heard, the kids won't respond to your uh, lecturing, your teaching, your uh, Christian profession. There's nothing you can do. Absolute nonsense. The sociological data is overwhelming. Right now, in our 21st century moment, the biggest influence in the lives of our kids is still their parents. And statistically, dads particularly, when dads are involved actively in the transmission of faith, statistically, about three-quarters of kids continue in that faith. There is, a, uh, there is an age of development. There's an age of differentiation. We know that in development theory, kids go through a period of separating themselves. That's part of who they are. That's part of how they grow, right? It's not the same as rebellion. That doesn't undercut the influence of parents. That doesn't take away the influence of a Christian community. Uh, we need to work intergenerationally. 
in our culture of family breakdown, in our culture of uh, single-parent homes, in our culture of uh, all kinds of challenges, more and more kids are looking to grandparents. More and more young people are looking to older and more experienced, knowledgeable Christians. There's huge opportunities here. There's a hunger for connection. Pastors, elders, leaders, all of us. Let's not pull away. Let's not give up. Let's be sensitive, not reactive. Let's look for ways to create spaces for dialogue. Patiently, carefully, let's engage. And that gets me to a fourth point very quickly. Allow curiosity provide resources. Uh, nearly all of the deconversion narratives say something like, uh, I didn't feel safe to ask questions. Uh, I spoke to my elder once or my whomever once, and they just told me to believe, pray more, do whatever. Let's not do that. Our goal is not to go liberal, progressive. We don't try and keep our kids by changing our doctrine. The mainline tried that 40 years ago. They're almost extinct. Right, let's learn from that. Let's work to allow for sincere questions, honest exploration. Let's even allow doubts to find their voice. Let's make room for a generation of Thomases. Let's raise our young people to know that they can ask their questions. They can push back on the Sunday sermon. They can explore uh, the broader Christian tradition. Let's encourage them to do that with our help. That will be difficult. That's a change of tone and posture for some of us. It's necessary if we want to preserve continuity. Here's some really, really briefly. Of course, less politics, or at least let's learn to make politics less ultimate I didn't bring the cartoon. This is a cartoon of the churches emptying out the decline of the church and all the people are carrying their pews to left and right political parties. That's a pretty accurate snapshot of what's going on. We politicise everything. Information silos, political silos. Let's not feed that. Let's learn to welcome the Republican and the Democrat. Let's learn to say, actually, as a Christian, I'm a diagonalist. Jesus' teachings cuts both ways. He's an equal offender across both parties, right? Um, let's learn to go back to scripture rather than to party platform. And again, let's welcome the question, the curiosity. Most of all, let's keep reaching out to the nuns. We know that many of them come back. We're seeing this already. Let's practice true hospitality. Let's practice patient conversation. Let's practice love that Francis Schaeffer called the final apologetic. Let's practice lots of prayer. When we notice that someone's missing, when we hear the report of a child struggling, a spouse struggling, may our first default be to pray. God gives conversion. God reaches the human heart, the human conscience. He intrudes where we dare not. Let's go to him in prayer. Lots of things left unsaid, but uh, I do want to be respectful of, of time. Let me just pray for us maybe, and then we can 
uh, do Q&A if that still works, Dan. Yeah. Father, we've said a lot, uh, much of it fast. Um, Lord, I just pray that the pieces that are most helpful to the individuals here would stick. Help us not to fear our culture or to be set against it, but help us to bring the cultural shifts to the bar of Scripture and to be obedient to you, to learn to say yes and no, to stand for and to stand against in a way that matches your own posture of welcome and love. You, when you came and lived amongst us, were the Holy One of Israel and yet also the true friend of sinners. Father, may we learn that posture. Help us as we embrace those who hurt. Help us as we try to serve those who are in active deconstruction. And Father, help us to stay firmly rooted in the faith that you've given to the saints once for all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.